Welcome to the Project Tempest podcast, where we talk with creators about their creative journeys. I'm CJ, and we have our first returning guest, the narrative designer, horror writer, Kiwi Ed McRae. Ed, welcome back. I have returned. Excellent. <laughs> now, there's only one real question, Ed. Yes. Everything else is kind of irrelevant. Are Wellington craft beer bars <laughs> the best in New Zealand or by far the best in New Zealand? <laughs> I like I like the options that you've given me there. Uh, I agree. Yeah, not not biased at all. <laughs> uh, my answer to that will be um, we have to go out to the uh, craft beer scene in Dunedin when you come down so that we can maybe broaden your context. Excellent. My my understanding of Dunedin, which is a town in the South Island of New Zealand, my understanding is that as we walk to that bar, we will pass a landscape of burning couches and utter chaos. Is that accurate for Dunedin? In certain portions of the city, yes. At, at certain Excellent. times of year. Yeah, it, do, it does all get a little bit wicker man around the Otago University. Um, but there are there are other uh, other areas that are much more sedate and that kind of creepy gooming uh, glooming <laughs> creepy glooming wow those are great words now yeah creepy looming gothic way um, in fact that that's I think that's why I do really enjoy Dunedin and find it it's inspiring from especially for horror because it it, it is a fundamentally kind of um, creepy city. That's fair. I, it's one of the things that I first noticed about Wellington as well when I moved here. Um, there are certain things about the light and the skyline, especially around dusk, that are incredibly gothic, really surprisingly so. And, and it certainly has that atmosphere. Mm -hmm. um, the backstory to all of this is that last week in New Zealand, they had the New Zealand Game Developers Conference, NZGDC. And we both got to be in the same city and at the same conference. And we got to hang out, which was fantastic. And we met a lot of really cool people really in and around games and especially narrative design so that was that was really fun um how did you find nzgdc mm, oh it was it was awesome um i had so many good conversations with so many um game devs i mean my focus for being there was uh learning from game developers about what we should be um basically teaching our students at otago polytech because i right. i'm spending quite a bit of time um teaching game development and setting up game development courses at otago polytech um having been in the industry now for you know sort of 10 years i think um it's really nice to be shifting from that to more of a teaching focus um which surprisingly has also given me my writing energy back i was flagging nice. flagging a bit so yeah it was fantastic to be i guess you know having the finger on the pulse of the at least the new zealand games industry seeing what's happening um and just seeing the energy and the sense of community was actually the coolest thing yeah i agree it's it's certainly evolved pretty rapidly i i agree with you about 10 years ago it was um um, very nascent, very much kind of on the rise. And now I think you could say we really do have a fully fledged scene with a lot of variety, a lot of diversity, a lot of amazing people coming through. Oh, absolutely. I think it, from memory, uh, going to the Auckland ones about 10 years ago, and I, I don't think it'd be unfair to say, I think we were literally 30 white guys in a room yeah. in the in center city, Auckland. Yeah. And that was it. <laughs> There's that point, I think, in in all game industry scenes worldwide where you, at some point, you do evolve from it's a bunch of guys in a guy's bedroom and it smells like a guy's bedroom. Mm. 
and and that is in no way to disparage all of the wonderful people who've gone um really in earlier years but there is definitely a change and it's pretty wonderful i think yeah and that's um, that's also not to disparage the guys that actually keep a very uh, clean and tidy and and nice nice smelling bedroom too yeah. <laughs> absolutely yeah <laughs> but there there is a there is a reason for certain cliches i yeah. think it's yeah, fair to is. say and there's a, yeah absolutely um <laughs> It's a really interesting thing you raise, and and although I think most of what we're going to chat about today is really focused on horror, just around the education piece, what what at the moment is the gap between what working game developers and studios want and what education providers are providing, and what is happening to fill that? Yeah, the main message coming back to us was uh, that a a broad try everything education across a say a three-year degree is not what they're looking for it it means that the students are rocking up with a shallow experience and and skill set across lots of different areas and then the studios are having to basically train them in in the specialties that they need and game development even even on the with smaller teams there are so many different specialities working together and and so you know generalists there is a place for generalists people that can do several things at once but you still have to hone in on a certain area like like it could be art it could be programming it could be game design uh it could be production and it really helps if you do know about the other areas but no they're really wanting people who can you know sit down with unity technical artist start importing assets and trying stuff out and really kind of getting hands on in the works straight away um so that's something we're going to try and do you know still give the students a a a broadish foundation and what game development is about but then very much allow them to specialize as soon as we can around second year um, whether they want to go down the technical art path or the game design path and and so once they come out the other end they've got a deeper understanding of a specific area that means they've got a bit they can hit the ground running when they get into a studio for that for that specific role anyway nice it's a it's a really interesting point you made they um we're talking about the evolution of the games industry in general i mean i think it's not it's not that long ago 20 years at the most that because there was almost no formal game education everyone kind of came in and swam around and tried things and there was much less specialization Mm. and then now as you say i very much echoed around things like startups which i also work in where you do have that early phase where you still want everyone to be able to jump in on almost everything but rapidly you really want someone who knows exactly how to do growth marketing or Mm. someone who knows exactly how to do certain things with this tool set rather than just all in right and i think that evolving specialization is echoed um pretty much across digital in general Mm. and i do think there's always a dangerous specialization where you get people who know everything about something and nothing about anything else but i certainly see that across the projects we're involved in um it's potentially at this point unless you want to be a solo indie dev which is a wonderful thing but if you're trying to fit into those larger more disciplined organizations especially the global ones it's not that helpful to be a little bit good at a bunch of stuff but not anything beyond that would you say absolutely yeah i think um yeah that specialization is just so important yeah for for anything larger than 
let's say in the games industry than a two to three person studio and even in a, actually even in a two to three person studio let's say three three people you're still going to have someone who's carrying the load of being the developer like the yes the do it, working with the scripts um, working with the tool set being quite technical you're going to have someone who's carrying the load of the art um, and you're going to have someone who's carrying the load of often production and narrative design tend to go together um, yeah, str- sure. strangely enough and um, yeah even at that level those if you don't have those specializations it kind of it just doesn't work but I guess the, the, port, the important thing though is when you do have lots of specialists working together, as communication becomes so yeah. so extremely important. See, I I very smartly avoided um, many of the traps that we're talking about by being completely useless at any kind of visual drawing or any kind of visual <laughs> skill. Yes, yeah, same. <laughs> I exactly. So so I I I can't be a a bad artist because I am no artist. <laughs> and this was my cunning plan to specialize in certain kinds of narrative and certain kinds of, of, of essentially general communication. Um, I'm, I'm quite proud of myself for anticipating the entire trend of the world over the past 20 years. <laughs> well done. Well done for doing that. <laughs> lean, lean into your weakness. <laughs> exactly. Applied uselessness is, is really quite powerful when you, when you look at it. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but I, I do find it's interesting too, though. Have you found that as, uh, because you've very much leaned into writing and, you know, the written word and, and communication that, you end up also in those startup situations being kind of the hub of communication. So you end up being the translator between different specialities. There is very much a thing in my experience. Um, so when I say startups, I, I, I'm talking about um, very early stage companies that probably have their initial funding, but are not even yet at, at necessarily a series A, which is one of the first kind of um big milestones that you have Mm. and companies in that stage of existence are often very chaotic they often have a huge amount of energy and talent they often are not quite sure yet what it actually is they're making and how they're taking it to market Mm. there's this real kind of washing machine experience in the first couple of years of a lot of startups where you basically try a bunch of stuff and a lot of stuff doesn't work out and through that you evolve a much more focused sense of we are making this thing for these people in this way yeah which i think is echoed quite a lot in some kinds of game development um, oh, absolutely yeah i think um, yeah. that's that's often the the hard part for a lot of uh indie startups is working out what the heck they're actually going yes. to make like yeah. what what audience are you going for uh and therefore what sort of game is going to suit that audience and does it match up with the game you want to make and all of that yeah absolutely and and my experience with startups to your point about communication is the actual like like the 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 short-term kind of marketing outputs of a lot of startups are actually not that important. Where you really find the crucial stuff around communication and language is at some point you have to be able to distill exactly what you are truly doing and who who you're doing it for and how it works Mm. into something that everyone understands and is on board with regardless of their discipline. Um, In most creative fields, one way or another, this is the vision, the goal, the whatever. For, for startups, um, you very often have a bunch of people who communicate and understand that idea from quite different perspectives. And it's more a matter of experience rather than any particular skill. Um, 
you can see it coming when you realize that, for example, the chief technical officer actually has quite a different idea of what they're doing from the CEO, mm. from the chief marketing officer. And one of the things that I watch out for a lot is simply just going, we're going to go around and around a little bit with re-expressing to ourselves and each other what it is we're doing in quite succinct form so that we can have a, a genuinely shared vision that everything flows from. And that sounds a little bit floaty, but when you actually have it on paper in less than a paragraph, what you are doing and why, you find that everything else naturally rolls downhill from that in a really cool way. Mm. And the challenges and the thing that, that I think stresses a lot of people when they're going through this for the first time, whether it's in a overtly creative thing like a game or a film or in a startup, it's actually not a question of sitting down for half an hour and going, oh, we've got a little paragraph now. It's always a very iterative washing machine of, okay, we've tried to express this thing. We've moved a little bit on. Now that's wrong. Something doesn't feel right. What's going on? This person has a different view from that person. It's an ongoing process of communication and discovery and re-expression. Mm -hmm. And again, I think a lot, a, a lot of parallels to exactly how games develop. You know what? It, the, it, it actually sorry. also sorry to sort of cut in there, but it, yeah. it actually reminds me so much of the survival horror setup. Yes, I, I, I was just thinking of the uh, so the dawn dawn of the dead springs to mind, and I think it was was it Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead, the remake. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the shopping mall. In the shopping mall. Yeah, and the concept of taking a whole bunch of different characters who. In, they have their own lives and they have their own stories that they're playing out so basically you know they're a, they're a short story anthology um, without a theme without a connecting theme they're a, they're a mess <laughs> but the zombies arrive and suddenly they've all got a narrative that unites them they have to survive yeah. against the zombie horde so then you see all of those different stories start to come together to into one story um, they each bring their individual elements to it, like um, you know the 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 classic of the the sort of what oh who's that the alpha male security guard yeah sure who ends up turning kind of sacrificial hero uh, but it's like he didn't he had his own story he was dominating his little um, security guards at the time before the zombie apocalypse turned up but he didn't have anything beyond that he had his own little fiefdom and he didn't extend it to anyone else in fact everyone else was a threat to his little fiefdom but then suddenly because of the zombie apocalypse he is uniting his story with the other characters to actually help them survive and it's kind of <laughs> i don't know it's kind of an interesting parallel i think i i think in so many ways a lot of those horror movies and horror things especially are really just parables of modern corporate life and, and modern organizational life, right? I mean, what are zombies, but in some sense, other people on on mass. And it's so useful mm. to have a zombie to focus you because everyone can more or less agree that the goal is at the very least to survive and ideally eliminate the zombies. Yes. And you're right. In the absence of a zombie, um, it can be quite hard for a whole bunch of people at different stages of their life and with different stories to actually agree on something. And that's just a core kind of... Um, writing business emotional communication experience that applies to almost everything um yeah so it, it's a it's a really good point and i've i've always been struck by the extreme parallels between very different areas of things that i've worked on like the creative process we've just talked about the process of building a startup the process of developing government policy 
they're all very human processes that go through the exact same emotional ups and downs regardless of the content mm -hmm. and that that really is one of the places where i think um having some combination of ideally language facility and empathy and just experience as a human being is really one of the things that is very hard to teach at an early stage in people's careers but when you get further on in your career it's really everything mm, yeah well i think it's um you know again actually in those classic survival horror stories it's often the one person in the group who is able to put themselves in other people's shoes that they have empathy they can yes. take others perspectives that then actually pull the different people together by um, just understanding them and understanding what you know what they're dealing with and and also but recognizing their strengths as well and often helping other people recognize strengths that they didn't realize they had um, in a stressful situation absolutely and I think that's where um, because this is two writers talking, we, we get to imagine ourselves as kings of the world for a moment and just say, well, that's kind of what we do. That That's our wheelhouse, ideally. Mm. Understanding people's perspectives, communicating them, finding the kind of gut issues and emotional challenges that people go through. Mm. And this is, a, th th this is the perfect time for me to elegantly segue from talking about organizational communication to this thing that we're both doing at the moment, which is trying to create horror and horror stories in mm. various ways. Mm. Um, it's, it's interesting you say, like, um, I would say we are more like uh, evil puppet masters than we are <laughs> uh, positive, um, say, scrum masters, <laughs> because, yes, yes, we, we set up um, monsters that um, will rally our characters together to defeat, but then we also manipulate the characters so that there are conflicts between the characters as well. So I think we're kind of, a, a, yeah, a bit of both. Isn't that just management? Didn't you just describe a scrum master rather than... <laughs> <laughs> oh, the, so yeah, that element of divide and conquer. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's a certain sort of management, yes. <laughs> the kind that everyone loves. Yeah, totally. Um, now, during this NZGDC week where we got to hang out and enjoy each other's company, we, we talked quite a bit back and forth about some of the things that we're building, some of the things that we've been really interested in. You kept on mentioning Cujo by mm. Stephen King. Yeah. And this is something, a, a, a book and a film that I think we've both enjoyed. How is that applying to the work that you're doing at the moment in your own horror writing? It's actually been extremely informative and uh, definitely the novel, not so much the movie. I do remember seeing the movie, but I honestly don't remember much about it. Um, apart from it had a very kind of late 70s, early 80s vibe. Sure. <laughs> uh, but i do so the novel i picked up uh quite recently and um sat down to read it and kind of not i wasn't expecting to enjoy it as much as i actually did um because i had heard the backstory that you know it was one of it's one of the books that stephen king doesn't remember writing because yeah he was sure. um in the depths of his alcoholism and drug addiction at the time um, but wow, it's a good book. Now, so this, um, so the setup at the core is that there is a mother and her son, mm -hmm. and they are trapped inside a car, and there is a dog that won't let them out of the car. Exactly, and the dog. Yeah. Um, so it's a it's a Saint Bernard, large Saint Bernard, and it it's um, and it's, this is no spoiler. Very early on in the story, 
it um, chases a rabbit into a cave and then ends up getting bitten by some bats that that are carrying rabies and it's what i really enjoyed about it was it's very much it's he wrote it so that you felt empathy for cujo like here was this lovely family dog um absolutely adored his people um was you know his owner the boy's best friend and then but seeing him through basically mental illness is is the rabies ate away at his sense of self and did all sorts of weird stuff to his body it's you saw him degenerate into this kind of just very angry creature that just wanted to kind of take its pain out on anything um that it could get its its jaws into and um but what Stephen King does a really good job of is that like the 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 mother and son they don't get trapped uh with Cujo on this you know outlying um block until I think it's a good third into the book yeah 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 um so he spends the whole first third of the book literally just building the characters and the relationships and getting to know all of the different characters that that kind of surround Cujo in one way or another and that's what I'm very much applying to now the um, novel I'm writing Gore is I'm taking the time to actually um, just get to know the characters and have the characters get to know each other and kind of establish the core relationships before um, you know the monsters turn up that's really interesting and and coming I think from the backgrounds that both of us have we are in more more action oriented things by nature it can be such a shift i think i've i've very much found this to just go actually the first page doesn't have to have everyone jumping into the action straight away mm. and we can give 10 20 50 100 200 pages in stephen king's case of just as you say let's get to know these people a little and if we do that well enough and people are are emotionally real enough the readers will come along with it but that can be really hard i found that really hard when i'm like well if, if there's no gunfight why would anyone care mm, mm. and i think again stephen king does a good job because the i believe it's actually the very first yes yeah, the opening kind of um scene and it's not even between two of the main characters it's be between two of the very secondary characters but um one of them is this old woman and she just she's i guess she's been in castle rock so long that she can kind of just sense the vibe of the place and she senses that something is coming something bad is coming and nice. it's that sense of i guess premonition that kicks the the dread off so that you so that then you know that something bad is coming and you can feel it build through the book as you're getting to know the characters um, it's that classic thing of the gun has been put on the table. Yeah, you're just sure. waiting for someone to get shot. Nice. And um, I think without that, um, then it it feels like yeah, a bit soap operaish. Like you, there's a lot of interaction going on, but you don't know where it's going. And often, nice. and from experience, I know that with soap opera, you the writers don't know where it's going either. From, <laughs> from week to week, we literally sat down at the table for short the street and would make up. Like, okay, this is where we left off. Where are we going next? Yeah. Yeah. 
there's an awful lot of business sometimes just as you say those 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 short little scene interactions where people are going back and forth and things are happening but they're not really happening we're just doing our business mm. and if there's if there's no broader arc behind that it, it, it can get trapped in that i agree i I always find the, the comparison between dread and suspense. So I think it's Alfred Hitchcock's classic kind of um, thing about suspense where you see two people talking at a table. Mm. Okay, fine. But if just before that we know, but they don't know that there's a bomb under the table, mm. that introduces this this really cool dynamic where we as the audience feel this mounting tension. When is the bomb going to go off? And because the two characters don't know, they're in a completely different space. Mm. And when... Um, I think we've both read the book by Tim Wagoner, yes. which is writing in the dark. And he talks very much about what you just said, which is early on one way or another, whatever tool you've got, if you establish the dread, then people know that something is coming and there's this delicious anticipation, but then you can stretch out and get to know everything else in the shadow of this cloud that we yeah. really are anticipating. Exactly. And how to build that dread, I think is the real key, right? It's, it's, it's like the case of, um, it's like almost literally a storm building on the horizon. Yes. Like you have a small town and you see the clouds starting to form and darken. You see the first elements of lightning. The storm hasn't hit the town yet, but everyone can, well, depending everyone, some will see the storm long ago and start preparing for it. Others will kind of look at it and go, nah, that's going to blow over. It's nothing. It's all the interesting characters reactions to the storm that's coming that will hit and cause tragedy. Um, and I think that's, yeah, again, like I say, like the bomb under the table, it's like, that's where the dreads coming from. Um, yeah, nice. and then you give the chance, the characters to react to it. And actually an interesting one, I'm just reading Max Brooks's devolution. De- right, de-evolution, yes. I think it's called. So Max Brook of um, Max Brooks, sorry, is it Brooks or Brook? I think it's Brooks because Brooke. his dad is Mel Brooks. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. He of um, World War Z fame. The book, not the movie. The movie, I just ugh. <laughs> I've just got to go ugh. But the book is just amazing. Um, but but what he does. And again, it, it sounds like it might be a spoiler, but it's not. Like I think almost literally on page one or two, he talks about the Green Loop Massacre. So this town that you get to know, you know that there's going to be a massacre. Like, so what's really interesting now is that I'm getting to know the characters of, of Green Loop. I'm only half, I don't know, about 40% of the way through the book. And... I know that most of them are probably going to die, but what I'm <laughs> what I'm fascinated by is how it happens, and and yes. if there are maybe going to be one or two survivors, and you know, like so, it's 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 not even what the it's the question is there. I know what the bad thing is going to be. It's how people get to that bad thing is is what's really fascinating me. Nice, I think one one challenge that I think horror presents unusually enough is there 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 is a certain passivity sometimes which is not a bad thing in horror but i think with the kind of training that both of us have you're you're always taught that in drama the one thing that you really want is you want your characters to be as active as possible mm-hmm. you want them to be making decisions and moving towards things and then essentially continually failing in really interesting ways and with horror you're right if there's a Stephen King type sort of 
um, building dread and some type of maybe supernatural force moving through the story, everyone else is fundamentally reacting to that. And for a long time, that can be relatively passive, but that's where the character stuff comes into me. Mm. It, even someone's reaction to something can be interesting from a character point of view, even if it's not from an action point of view. And that's the shift that I've been trying to make, which is I'm not actually trying to figure out what the most interesting thing for someone to do is. It's what is the, um, what is the state of this person that we've started to get to know how do they react? What's their emotions around that? How can that be interesting? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point. It's yeah, it's about is this uh, calamity going to bring out their strengths or their weaknesses or an interesting combination of both? And um, it's about those they're being tested, um, and it's how they react will decide whether they survive or not. Really, and. Uh, somebody, I can't remember when I was having a conversation at some point about um, uh, Arkham Asylum, uh, the Batman game. Nice. And how it was actually quite a challenge to turn that into the kind of quite potentially, well, I don't know. I played it. I didn't actually find that, that creepy. But whoever I was talking to, they, they found it was quite creepy. But there was a challenge of like, how do you make something creepy? How do you make it horror when you are when your main character is one of the most capable human beings <laughs> yes. in fictional history? It's yes. like you know, uh, Batman is the ultimate. He, he's the action man. He he does stuff. He doesn't react. Yeah. He does stuff. You know, it's a really interesting point. And to that point about Batman in general, um, Arkham Asylum and and the comics. One of the things that I found in the Batman comics that I enjoy the most is when he goes into Arkham Asylum itself and often when he's confronting the Joker in particular, but Arkham Asylum to me is always one way or another for Batman. It's a descent into madness. Mm. It's a journey through a really particular kind of territory where usually most of the tools he has, you know, he's a world-class gymnast. He's an amazing athlete. He's the most badass fighter. He's the smartest guy. Mm. All of those tools are either irrelevant or get turned against him. Yeah. And that to me is, is why probably Arkham Asylum and the Joker stories keep on being so compelling for people because there is a, obviously there's a thrill in seeing the world's greatest detective use all his gadgets and conquer a normal foe. Mm. But Batman is always one inch away from complete madness. Yes. And the Joker is on the other side of that mirror and the Joker knows it and Batman knows it. Mm. And those confrontations are always the most interesting to me. It's like... Um, there's a Grant Morrison run of Batman, which is fascinating because Grant Morrison tried to kind of um, roll all of the different Batmans throughout history. So the 60s TV series Batman and the dark 80s Batman and all these other ones. He mm. tried to roll all of those Batmans into a single coherent character. And it's, it's, it's absolutely batshit crazy. <laughs> but um, one of the best things that happens to Batman very near the end of this is that Batman essentially dies. And oh, yeah. Batman is so willful that Batman, of course, anticipated that he might die at some point. So Batman has various things in place around a Tibetan ritual known as the Togal, which is a journey through the dead. Yeah. And it's this psychic struggle for Batman to both journey back from death, but also journey back from madness. And I think if you start with that as a premise, that's how they made something like Arkham Asylum interesting yes you're going to punch stuff and you're going to use detective vision and you're going to swing around with like with great athleticism 
but from the very opening moments of arkham asylum you are shown that you are basically walking with the joker into a land of madness mm. and you're not sure how you're going to come out no exactly and you you know that um in fact you were as batman you are basically stepping into the joker's mind because you know that the joker yes. controls that place utterly and, absolutely and so yeah i guess it i guess that is an interesting uh i get it's an interesting place you can put a strong character is if you place them in an utterly hostile environment where all of their normal support mechanisms are gone then you're making them to a degree helpless and then you've got the start of good horror story because it i think the the characters have to start out helpless they have to feel fear they have to feel that this this could be my undoing and and as a reader you have to feel that with them absolutely and i think part of that is, is really just the kind of core character construction where if if you think of characters one way to think of characters is that most characters have a central knot of some kind of contradiction at their core and they have a core sort of strength and thing that they believe about themselves that's always twinned with something that contradicts that and at some point exactly as you say someone's going to get forcibly removed from what they believe about themselves mm. and they and they're going to have to confront the idea that maybe the other thing is true and this is i mean one thing that happens over and over again in stephen king books is you have parents confronted with the idea that actually maybe they're not a good parent yeah yeah and that's something that people would often believe in themselves like they say okay regardless of whatever basically whatever anything else is going on in the world i have my kid and i'm a good parent to them and then stephen king comes along and goes well maybe not mm. and i th i think those very simple confrontations are the are the scariest aspect of horror of all something that is absolutely at your core gets twisted into almost its opposite and then you have to deal with the consequences of that that's that's exactly what happens in cujo too so i won't spoil it uh for for listeners who do want to read it because i do highly encourage uh, that strongly encourage you to read it but um yeah it's a real test of the one of the main characters the mother it's a real test of yeah her definition her self-definition as a good mother and and how that plays out so you yeah, basically the whole Cujo situation and and her family life really tests that identity uh and I won't won't say what what happens <laughs> nice so then if we take these ideas about horror and we take a bunch of really good people having various drinks and meals in and around Wellington over the past week. <laughs> what does it mean to try and bring horror into a New Zealand context? And one of the things that I'm going to presage this with, I'm not going to speak for you, my friend, but I know about myself that there's a pretty strong element of essentially fuck the establishment in my makeup. Mm. Whatever establishment you've got, I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to want to go the other way in some form. <laughs> and so I will happily make up an establishment if none exists, just so, just so I can be on the other side of it. But if there is already a, a strong strain and tradition of essentially dark Kiwi writing and particularly Kiwi horror writing, mm. where do you think you and I are existing in relation to this? Well, for my part, I think, and, and likewise, I, I hesitate to, to speak for you in this, um, but I think... Tim Wagner said it really well in that being a horror writer is really about looking at yourself and looking at what you are scared of. And um, 
And in fact, even outside of horror, I do remember Stephen Pressfield saying the the same thing. It's like um, he writes whatever scares the shit out of him, basically. He goes, if whatever the scariest kind of story is, he will go there. And it's it's like it's the challenge of what, what scares you. So I think as it's very cultural as well. So as Kiwis, I think there are certain things that we've grown up with that will scare us, that, that we find terrifying, that may be, may or may not, some of it may be universal, but, but some of it may be very Kiwi. And like, my, for instance, my own experience, um, to grow up in small town New Zealand, <laughs> especially as a... Um, a sensitive creative in small town New Zealand, like, and we're talking rural small town New Zealand yeah. is, um, that scares me shitless cause I've been through it and I don't <laughs> want to go back <laughs> to that. He said, now that he's actually moved I was gonna into say, one of the smallest towns, I'm in one of the <laughs> smallest towns in New Zealand. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I, um, it's really interesting you say, and and um, I'm I'm with you on the small town thing. I watched a great interview the other day, which was with the artist Victor Antonov, and Victor Antonov, I believe he is, uh, I think uh, no, he's not Serbian. Um, he is from somewhere in Eastern Europe. I apologise that I've forgotten this place. At a pretty early age, he was one of the. Um, key concept art people around half-life 2 oh cool which is one of the most visually distinctive games of all time and he he also brought a lot of advice to franchises like dishonored which is one of my favorites and one of the things about half-life 2 is at the time it was almost unique because it's it's a sci-fi story half-life 1 takes place in arizona in america half-life 2 most of it takes place somewhere in eastern europe in a city called city 17 and from the opening moments of half-life 2 you understand that you are in a different very interesting place than you've probably ever been in a video game and the reason for that is victor antonov and to our point about horror um one of the things victor antonov was talking about in this interview he doesn't he, he very rarely talks in public he was arguing that you take the thing that is yours that is where you come from that is the things that are really distinct about your origin and then you do try and universalize it. So for him, he was making a really strong argument that for essentially all of Eastern Europe and Russia, there's still even more work to be done for building that identity into essentially cultural products, Mm. that it doesn't all have to flow from the Americans. And there are already Mm. some incredible things that have come out of that region, obviously. And for New Zealand, there's been some work there, but there's in all this space. And I... uh, I mean, I have to think that the experience of growing up in a small, dark island with tiny rural towns <laughs> can be universalized because there's a lot of small, rural, dark places in the world. Mm, I I totally agree. And I think uh, for me, uh, there's probably two, two encouraging influences there. One is... Um, Elizabeth Knox's The Wake, which I'll come back to nice. in a sec. But um, the other one is The Rise of Scandi Noir, and, um, or Noir, sorry. And especially the Scandi Noir that has um, supernatural elements to it. Like uh, Rachel, my partner, and I just recently watched Equinox, which is a 
Danish supernatural thriller series oh, on awesome. Netflix. And just, it was so refreshing to see a different cultural perspective on doing, you know, and it's creepy as hell. Um, it's great. So a different cultural perspective on that, but at the same time being able to relate and going, oh yeah, I can, even though the context is different, then if I was in your position, Scandi character, I would also <laughs> be terrified right now. And, nice. um, and, but I think it's also encouraging because, you know, for instance, um, the Scandi nations, they're, they're kind of similar to us in that, like they're the, the extremes of the world. They're not highly populated. Um, so they also have, you know, lots of small towns surrounded by wilderness that kind of thing so i think they're seeing them do that gives me confidence to say we can do that too you know absolutely we and um we don't have to create our own castle rock although i know you and i have talked quite a bit about that <laughs> as a as a very strong influence we can do you know our own sort of uh kiwi horror settings and so coming back to elizabeth knox i think she did a beautiful job of that with the wake where she took um, an otherwise extremely pleasant um, little fictional town, which is based, I think, somewhere between Nelson. I never quite could pin it down geographically, and I think that was the intention. It's yeah. it's somewhere in that kind of Nelson Bay's area, which you know, have, have you visited that area, Colin? Yeah. So this is um, basically near the top of the South Island in New Zealand, and it's a region that is. Um, really well known for being actually really sunny mm. and really beautiful and extremely scenic. Yes. Um, and so, as you say, if, if you take that kind of environment and then you show the dark side, that can be a wonderful contrast. Oh, absolutely. And she does that beautifully where she basically closes off this little fictional town, um, has a supernatural force drive most people utterly and homicidally crazy. And then, then you sit with the survivors and, um, for the rest of it while they work out how the hell to get out of the situation and um yeah suddenly it, it transforms from that kind of you know sunny utopia that that i think people often kind of associate with the nelson bays area to it goes inward and psychological again so it's the horror it almost doesn't matter of the about the physical landscape the the real landscape of horror is inside people's minds it's the landscape of fear and and of rumination and our horrendous ability to imagine futures that may or may not happen to us nice and so with your own work if you're if you're talking about i think in your case um very small towns very far south aside from that landscape what what is it that really scares you and that you want to convey to your readers in it is it the sense of being essentially out of place in one of those places but then how does how does that work emotionally yeah i was again uh, i'm i'm treating this novel as a bit of a journey of self-discovery um cool nice i recently listened to a an interview with uh yuval noah harari the writer of uh sapiens and uh homodeus yeah. and uh this was the ted interview and one thing that really struck me was he said this challenge of you know know yourself um better than the ai will know you or the algorithms yes. will know you or the corporations will know you 
and he said that's that's this his advice for survival in this new world and um and he said do it however you can he uses meditation um other people may use say psychotherapy or they may you know all sorts of methods for getting to know yourself and he said art art is a path forward and it just clicked with me it's like wow if i through writing novels horror novels can understand get to understand my own fears then no one else is going to be able to manipulate those fears because i'll know what's going on nice um so i guess then it got me to looking at okay yeah this sort of small town new zealand existence what what is it what is it about that that has always scared me and one element i picked up on was well growing up as a kid i was i mean i was a farm boy i was reasonably physically active but i was never one of the big rugby playing boys or the hardcore hunting boys or you know any of those like really physically strong and could snap me in half kind of guys Sure. And that scared the shit out of me because yeah. it was always felt like if one of them just turned on me one day, and I, also I was a bit of a mouthy kid. Uh, ah, of course. Yeah, so if there was a sense of, you know, somebody trying to intimidate me, I'd mouth off at them and then they would try and snap me in half. So <laughs> so, so I was always kind of walking this knife edge of keeping my own mouth in check and, and dealing with these these uh creatures <laughs> these looming monsters <laughs> and so i think i've carried that with me and, and sort of realized okay well that's that's what a, probably a lot of you know uh people in in um my situation feel in small towns if they feel like a bit of an outsider yeah you sure. know it's the threat of um you kind of struggle to fit in but what if the town just decides that you don't fit in and what are they going to do? And that's always scared me. It's never, never happened, but you know, it's, I think it's, it's a fear that I've carried with me and it's a fear I want to explore. That's really fascinating. And, and I, I absolutely know that you wouldn't be alone in that at all as a, as a thing that, that, that people feel. Um, it's really interesting to hear you saying that, that sense of, even if nothing ever actually happens, there's just always that tinge in the air that it could. Mm, yeah. And I find um, um, this is where I, I, I find a lot of the, how do you call it? I think over the past 30 or 40 years in particular, a huge range of identities and aspects of people have been allowed to have much freer expression mm. in modern Western societies. And this is everything from race, gender, sexuality, mindset, all of those things. And I think on the whole, as a, as a trend, this is a wonderful thing. Mm. But I think there's, a, there's an almost universal flavor to all of them, which is that sense of you're in a place, you're surrounded by people, in one way or another, you fundamentally feel that you are separate and in some in some respects different from the people around you. And what would happen if they all suddenly looked at you and realized mm. how different you are and what would the consequence of that be? And that, that to me feels like a kind of almost universal note of terror. Yes. And part of what, if there's anything I think that the last, especially the last 10 years have shown, it's, it's, it's actually not minorities. Um, we keep on sort of imagining that there's, an, there's this wonderful normal 
in giant quotes majority and then there's all these people who are somehow different from that and when you add up all of the different people there's nothing left there's nothing left <laughs> to be the normal majority yeah and that to me is the clearest thing that we get as we really move forward into a world where people ideally can be more themselves mm. but at the start of that process you're in a small town somewhere and you're just some way you're at a different angle than all of the giant rugby playing um lunks around and yeah. everything yeah it's it's a it feels so universal to me and so specific which is so encouraging yeah and i think it's interesting would it be fair to say that that relates quite nicely to your reaction against um authority as in um if as you say like if you add up all of the minorities then the minorities are the majority so there is no majority but what happens is there's a story of majority that's being created by whoever and often someone it's like it's a very useful story for social uh control um so for instance I'll, I'll go out on a limb here and i'm sorry i'm going to use the catholic church as an example <laughs> the catholic church was extremely good at controlling people uh through story and um and in the cases of say the spanish inquisition if you didn't believe in that story and you openly said that you didn't believe in that story you were in serious trouble um like mortal trouble so I think um, it's like I still feel that in small town New Zealand is that there is a, there is a dominant culture that people will follow regardless of their own minority. You know, yes, like they, they can they they will express their minority in their they'll express themselves in their the privacy of their home and maybe in small groups, but they don't dare do it really publicly because the story of small town new zealand is not compatible with that now i yeah. i i absolutely agree i i have as, as i'm sure you do I, I have personal experience of sitting with people in small towns and hearing them express opinions that i know they don't actually hold mm. but it's the thing that can get voiced at that at that moment in that in that group yeah um over and over again of course to me when you when we talk about sort of things that make me shiver in my gut um i i have a fundamental fear of mobs of mm. all kinds of every single persuasion a a large group of people to me has its own mindset and that is an animal mindset and the results are almost always bad regardless of intention so i am <laughs> i have a I, I have a fundamental issue with any large group of people acting together as a mob oh my and, gosh. and again yeah um i i do not care where on the political spectrum the mob thinks it's coming from mobs terrify me um at the same time i i am suspicious of large power structures above a certain size at the same time i have enough experience in government to know some of the real politic of why sometimes power structures are are necessary so i'm i'm not a hardcore anarchist in the sense of i want to tear everything down but I strongly believe, and I think evidence supports me, that above a certain size, any power structure, whether it's a government, a church, an organization, a following, anything, above a certain size, power structures become corrupt and become um, something that fundamentally twists truth. So I'm kind of caught between don't want mobs, 
and am suspicious if not terrified of large power structures. And so trying to find the space in between that where um, a fictional character could operate is pretty much my challenge. Mm, that's a really interesting challenge. Um, yeah, because on one level, in one level, say the the mob, which I think I think zombie apocalypses are fundamentally fear of the mob, because yes, absolutely um, the zombies they do they just uh, well traditionally say in World War Z they act as a single big voracious creature you know they they swarm together um, so they the individuals have lost any sense of themselves and and yes. i think when you see uh, examples of like real world examples of groupthink and um disastrous groupthink like riots and and so on that's exactly what's happening everybody loses any sense of themselves and they just join into this one kind of unifying emotion whether it be rage um or any sort you know um Whereas at the other end, when you get you know, massive human structures, as soon as as soon as you get to a point where people can't remember everybody's names, yeah, it's a really good yeah, yeah absolutely. Then then you're at risk of dehumanization, and and I think that's that yeah that's the danger of of large structures. It's so easy to then um, dehumanize other people, even in your own organization. They just become kind of um, tools, not people, as it were. Absolutely. And that, that very distinct feeling that, I mean, many, many, many people have of being a cog. And looked at one way, being a cog, in a positive sense, can mean that you are part of a functioning social contract. You're part of healthy positive structures in society mm. but i think the actual feeling that many people get especially as you say the large organizations that they're part of is simply that they are a cog and what do cogs do they get ground yeah and that as as an emotional space i think that's very much part part of 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 the kind of recent and modern condition um so i agree and, and on the other end i mean what is social media but literally a set of algorithms designed to generate mobs i mean that is what social media is <laughs> yes. which, which which is what which you run into it in a business sense because we try very hard not to actively use social media too much especially in in terms of the platforms like facebook and twitter because even though they are verifiably useful for some kinds of advertising at some point you have to ask yourself do i want to be part of the mob machine and I think if we're planting flags anywhere, my flag would be, no, I don't. Mm, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And um, yeah, there's another story that I would love to have a go at writing, uh, which I've, I've called Troll Hunter at the moment, but it, it, it basically talks, it addresses that sense of mob behavior in on the internet, especially the vitriol that can come out from yeah from certain crowds and i guess applying a, a consequence to that it's a very unformed idea but it's certainly an, it's a topic that really interests me and yeah it also scares me because i think too um it's it becomes a, it's still uh, i think it's too easy for people when they're when they're looking at say internet culture and say you know even death threats 
don't seem to be counted as death threats on the internet. They're just no. another form of insult. But they still hurt deeply. But I think because there's the there's some sort of barrier of it being digital and it being from a distance, then it's not taken as seriously. Whereas if you shift it back to small town New Zealand, if you've got a group of people in small town New Zealand that are giving you death threats, then even if they never carry that through, you are suddenly isolated. You are suddenly being abused left, right and centre and you've got nowhere to go. You're trapped. Like if you're in a large city, you've, I guess you've got the option of moving to a different part of the city, a different neighbourhood, getting away from it, still commit, commuting to work from a different area. But if your livelihood is based in that small town and you cannot move and the mob has turned against you, that's a terrifying place to be. You're trapped. Absolutely. On a, on a, on a visceral gut level, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, there's a, there's a book by the crime writer Val McDermott, which is set. I can't remember where in England, but it's somewhere that's kind of out of time Mm. where most of the progress of civilization hasn't really gotten there. And it's this tiny little village that's almost in like a cutting off the sides of all the roads. So you, you, um, you can only get there by going there. You, You don't pass through it. And it's something like, you know, 20 houses and everyone who lives there their grandparents live there and their grandparents grandparents live there Mm. and you imagine growing up and living in that environment absolutely cut off from everything Mm. and if something goes wrong in that environment for you that is your your entire world is now a nightmare yeah absolutely And, and if you've got no if you have just grown up there and even even though you've been connected to the internet and you see there's another world out there that's the only world you've ever actually lived in and experienced so the thought of leaving that world would almost be for some more frightening than dealing with the frightening stuff that's going on in the small community absolutely and 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 i think i mean even for new zealand i mean there is still a thing where i i know a fair number of people for whom even the idea of leaving new zealand physically is something they've never done their entire lives it's it's changed well now we're not leaving new zealand because of covid Mm. but um, certainly a slightly older generation there was a whole bunch of us that never left New Zealand it was it was and and it wasn't really a failure of finance or means it was a failure of imagination mm. which which is the core problem with all of all of these small environments right um, there's 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 this boundary limit to a certain kind of um, the the imagination and the idea that you could simply leave is often not a factor. No. You often don't feel like you can leave. You are here. You are stuck. This is the world. You can't leave the world. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, exactly. The only way you leave the world is by death. And that's... Exactly, exactly. And that's the common result in horror. Um, and in real life, it's, yeah, it's sort of uh, almost a death of identity. Nice. Like, yeah. If, if you do, it's like you either buy into the story and get the mob to like you again, or you're just on your own. And, yeah. Absolutely. So in 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 these other much maligned genres that get called genres, things like speculative fiction and romance, mm. I see around us in New Zealand a bunch of really interesting people jumping into a bunch of really cool projects. There's a Wellington spec fic project 
which is all about witchy fiction, which is really um, urban fantasy with witches in Wellington. And there's a bunch of people writing novels and novellas and just kind of jumping in and building out this world together. Ah, uh, yes. I, th- I think I heard about that one f- via Issa Pearl Ritchie. She's, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, yeah. Um, one of the writers, I think, is Melanie Harding Shaw, who, do, who does great stuff. And even though, again, in, in my Fuck the Establishment mode, there's a... a part of the literary scene that wouldn't be caught dead in an alley with any of us <laughs> yeah there's this idea that we're we're doing our thing and enjoying ourselves and so um for you in terms of the next steps like like the next six months to a year what is the plan if there is a plan around this horror project it's very much to create first and build community second i've nice because i've been down the path in um self-publishing before especially with lit rpg where i've my first thing is i've gotten in and started to get to know the community and um ended up spending far more time on discord than actually writing the books for, (laughs) for a start um so i think with this one it's really important that i make the thing first um and then after that, I will reach out um, and start to, I guess, you know, build build that community around it. Um, but I mean, it's 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 fantastic. Like it's um, such a wonderful twist of fate that that you know you and I are on similar paths. So um, being able to kind of share this journey with you is 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 very cool. But I think yeah, for now, I'm just going to keep that that circle super small <laughs> and Absolutely. prove to myself i can write this thing first and then once i've got nice. it then then i'll start sharing it out and and for and for you you're i think you're taking a much more kind of community focused approach i believe with project tempest there's both and 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 part of it to your point i think you and i have the enormous advantage that we're really old buggers <laughs> yes, who yeah really don't don't give much of a crap anymore about a lot of things that maybe we worried about when we were younger oh totally and i think to me especially in horror more so than in almost any other genre everyone who does something interesting is ultimately doing it because they're ripping a part of their guts out and laying it on the page Mm -hmm. and coming from a place that was unexpected i i mean i i wouldn't aspire to be thomas ligotti for various reasons of kind of personality and mindset but thomas ligotti that's a guy who's who was never looking at market trends or community thomas ligotti was was writing his nightmares the same with caitlin kernan the same um, i mean at the time the same with hp lovecraft Mm. and so i think the advantage of being yeah ancient old buggers who are at a certain stage of life and who can really just sit down and get the work done um by ourselves is immensely powerful and 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 really encouraging i i I really enjoy this as well. And and it's the thing of um, jumping into giant pretension for a moment. If I think of things that as someone who makes stuff, what my life's work will be, there are two big categories. And one is helping other people and other communities do their thing. Mm. And in various forms, I've spent a fair amount of my life doing that. And I'm, in, I'm actually really proud of a lot of the stuff I've done. Like, like this, this is not disparaging anyone. I'm really proud that I that I learned the skills to help people achieve their their visions and what they're trying to get done. But the second side of a life's work is at some point you have that thing that's yours and you go, this is me on the page. And I'm 
incredibly happy with the idea that I seem to have found some territory at the moment which will reflect me. And I'm not super worried in the early stages about any of the finding an audience stuff, which ironically um, has actually come a little easier than I expected, mm. which has been really cool. Mm. So, so for me, I always thought of this idea of um, I wanted to make a space because I think quite spatially and a small town is a convenient space for me and for you I think mine is a small coastal town called Tempest Bay and I wanted to fill it up with history and people and do all the world building stuff that everyone enjoys but then I wanted to start doing lines of story through that and so it's almost like I'm visiting my own location as a tourist and writing down some of the stories that exist there and those are the, 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 the first stage of Project Tempest has very much been, okay, let's get some stuff on paper, let's put it out there, let's, let's release novellas and other things. Mm -hmm. The second phase, which is slowly developing, is inviting other people to come into this territory as well and build it and make of it what they will. And the key thing about that is it's not just world building in the sense of here is your map and here is that house down the road and here's the rules. This is very much a distinct kind of territory where certain kinds of stories and personal journeys and madnesses happen. And that flavor, I think, so far is the thing that if there's anything unique about Tempest Bay at this point, that flavor is what sets it apart from any other small town in any other part of the world. So there's, a, there's two streams. One is I have to put out a certain amount of words and novellas and those things in my own work. And the second side is we are trying to create a space for others to play in as well. And I'm making this up as I go along, of course. <laughs> we all um, do. I think we all are. Yeah, we all are, totally, exactly. Totally. But, there, but there have been enough examples and things of people trying to do that across many different media where you can take some hints and some clues about what might work. Um, one thing I ran into recently was this thing I had not heard of, and it's called The Thousand Year Vampire. And... Um, a Thousand Year Vampire is by Tim Hutchings and it's a role playing game but it's a solo role playing game mm. and it's been called a lonely role playing game which I think is pretty cool and what Thousand Year Old Vampire does is you are a vampire and you're going to live for maybe a thousand years and the the game which is a book so it's, it's a little bit like a pick a path book but not the book guides you through some prompts which make you create your own story. So it's not like a pick a path book where it goes, you are in an alley. Would you like to go left to go to page 30? Would you like to go right, go to page 45? It's much more like you are a vampire. You have just killed your closest friend. Who were they? And then you have to respond and engage and lean forward. And it guides you through this, this twisting story of who you are as a vampire and what it's like to live for a very long time and part of the way that it's constructed is it's this really wonderful balance between there is structure there is essentially material to support you but it really puts the onus on you're the one making the story mm. and i had not seen this approach before it's a fascinating idea and so things like that basically building tools that over time help other people come into this space and make their own stories is really interesting to me so that, so there's a bit of both and it's still early days and it's very much a long-term project but i am very much enjoying it mm, that's awesome in response to 
Donna, uh, what you were just saying about the now what was the name of the vampire game? Yeah, um, and then yeah, talking about leading on to your approach with Tempest Bay, it actually reminds me a lot of the paths that a lot of uh, video games have taken, whereby they will establish a actually Path of Exile is a good example uh, that. Um, for the listeners, just to quickly explain, I, I wrote for for four years, and it's very much a, a I guess a horror themed dark fantasy game, and very much the approach they took was building the first few acts of the game so that there was plenty of material there for the the players to experience and really to set the tone of what Path of Exile was or is still it's still going. But then they started to introduce um, features such as down the line, there was a strongholds feature where you could build your own stronghold within yeah, nice. ray class, the, um, the land. So you could carve out a little bit of your own and, and kind of use all of the assets from ray class and, and from path of exile to, to create your own little piece of ray class. And it sounds like that's, um, would it be is that would that be a fair comparison that you you are you're, you're setting the tone with with the novellas and um, with your other work there and then providing the tools like that stronghold system that Path of Exile introduced to then have people create their own piece of Tempest Bay. Very much so, and I think that's clearly the trend across a lot of digital entertainment. Right, I mean everyone keeps talking about the metaverse, and there's a lot of different opinions about that, but the core idea of at some point if we really want to bring people into our worlds we have to give them the tools to be story makers with us mm. and it's not that we cede all authority or control there still has to be some value in us as experienced um oh experienced like curators of narrative yeah. really yeah yeah but but the role does shift and it's less like in film for instance where the brilliant creative person hands you their experience on a platter and you must enjoy it on their terms. Mm, yeah. And I, and I think that to me is really the trend that we're both going towards. And it's an interesting thing around horror, especially because what is a lot of horror, but sort of um, strangeness and isolation and very unique mindsets. And we're trying to meld that and put that out into the world, but also say, everybody come in. It's not quite a party, but you're very welcome, which I think is a cool thing to try and contrast. I think so too. And it takes away the need to build a world from scratch i mean a lot yeah those yeah. of us who who enjoy doing that that's great but for those writers who have a story they want to tell they've got a, a fear they want to express but they don't want to have to go through the trouble of you know creating their own small town they they yeah. can set it within um tempest bay it, it's like a similar thing to like if um if I could write, in fact, if I could write a story set in Castle Rock, that wasn't just classic fan fiction. Like if it was, you know, supported by Stephen King in some way, I'd probably do it. Um, just yeah. because Castle Rock has been a part of my life for so long in so many different ways with the stories that I've read, that I I feel like I know it really well. It feels like a place that I can visit and sort of almost feel at home in for a little while. So I, I, yeah. I absolutely agree. And, and to your point, I, I think many of us have already spent a lot of time in Castle Rock. We just haven't had a way to 
capture or record or re-express that experience, right? Exactly, yes. And now there are tools emerging that, that can help with that, which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. It's it's And, and not only do we have the the actual digital tools, you know, the technology, I think we've also got the kind of conceptual structures now. Like it's, there are examples of how that can be done and can be done really well. And then it's just a matter of just applying those. Absolutely. I mean, someone like Ernest Hemingway, to a, on the terms we're talking about, Ernest Hemingway isn't really inviting you into the old man in the sea. No to be to to share that narrative with him he is someone delivering you a narrative a beautifully wonderfully constructed narrative but he is the man delivering you that narrative Mm. wrapped in a bow and i think there is a fundamental shift from a hundred years ago to now which as writers and creators it does behoove us to embrace one way or another oh absolutely and i think it it reflects the changes even in say publishing we are once upon a time yeah, you wrote a book, you sent it away to the publisher, they published it, they pushed it out. Yeah, you might have done a few um, like signing events and things like that to connect with the audience. But generally speaking, you didn't know your audience. Whereas nowadays, very much the path of the indie author through self-publishing is once you do have the work, then building that audience and really kind of inviting them into the world and inviting them into your life to a certain degree so that it's much more of a community um you know it's a community thing rather than a broadcast you know artist broadcasting their work to an audience a faceless audience the chosen few delivering to the masses. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. 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 Yeah, absolutely. I, I am, I am wildly encouraged by both this general trend and the idea that both of us, at this point in our lives, get get to work and explore in this space. This is this is really good to me. I think as as an overall thing. Yeah. Um, Likewise, and as you said, you know, we're both old buggers. Well, <laughs> you know, Gen X old buggers. We're not that old, but it's, <laughs> we're not those old. No, buggers, no, no. Though. No, no, but um, it's it's coming at a at a at a point where um, we can harness that experience that we've had, um, and that's a, that's what I actually really I'm enjoying being this old because I've I've got kind of I've learned that experience through life. I've got a much stronger sense of myself, so I'm actually I think able to tackle fear, fears more confidently yes. than I could have. And then having all of these tools to do it with and then share it with people is just amazing. That's awesome. This has been great. Thank you so much for coming back on for your second round of the Project Tempest podcast. It's enormously appreciated. I wish at, at, at some point, if I can get a photo of you, I think we need a photo of the yurt. <laughs> because yes. the listeners won't realize that you are broadcasting from a yurt in the South Island of New Zealand. And this is, this is great. So we... <laughs> We need to get that sorted. Um, and I th- I think you should go and walk your dog and I should go and enjoy some Wellington sunshine. Mm. But where can people find you online, Ed? Well, at this stage, the best place to find me is my website. So that's www.edmacrae.com. Uh, that's got everything there from my narrative design work in the games industry through to my um, current novels. At some point, I will fire up, a I think, a, a specific horror kind of brand and identity but um for now yeah com. that's where you can find everything about me that's perfect thank you very much ed mccray it's been an absolute pleasure colin always good to have a chat cheers tempest bay wouldn't be possible without the amazing support of everyone involved including you 
If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and consider leaving a review. This helps us out a lot. For more, please go to projecttempest.net for access to the videos, art, podcast, award-winning stories, and much more. That's projecttempest.net. See you next time in Tempest Bay.